<laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. That's what you're bringing up, and, I, and I'm not intending to, and I hope I'm not, in fact, treating it in a lighthearted way. is It's a difficult question, but I've done a lot, and it does seem to me that in the case of the enforcement of that law, there first had to be a covenanting of the culture to keep only one religion, and that therefore subversion against its religion would be um, punishable by death, even as treason would be in a, in, 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 um, in a warfare situation. And uh, Calvin argued that, that if a culture first covenants that it's going to keep that law, then the magistrate should keep it, otherwise um, uh, cannot. Moreover, I think the more salient application today is uh, with respect to religions that teach idolatry and so forth. I'm not talking about Christian denominations. For instance, uh, some of you may dispute this, and I'm open you know, to be taught and corrected. I'm not sure that the reformers were right to think that um, Roman Catholics should be executed uh, for their mass and for the rest. Although I do believe in God's eyes it is idolatry. It is not in the civil use of the law of God in the Old Testament idolatry to have a difference of opinion on that sort of question. Um, come out in a very clear way, I'm sure. Look, when the Roman Catholic Church says that it is not worshiping these images, then that in a civil court has got to stand. They may say that these are occasions of worship, these are aids to worship, we are not worshiping them. On the other hand, Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or what have you have a clear form of idolatry which can be proceeded against by the civil magistrate. And so while a man is free to be a Muslim, say, in a theocracy, he's free to have his own private religious opinions, he's not free to propagate them and to undermine the Christian religion. What you're asking is the further question, which is the difficult one, what about a whole city that is given over to an anti-Christian religion? Can it then be executed by the Christians around it? And I'm suggesting that only in the case where all the cities of the state or of the country have covenanted to follow the one religion would that be appropriate. I mean, that's according to the terms of God's law itself. That hasn't changed from Old Testament to New. But um, that's an area that I think we all have to be thinking about. If, if we agree that every jot and tittle of the law is binding, then we've got to understand that law in its context, understand our context, and get on to its application. So if you look upon my comments, if you will, as scratch marks as the beginning to understand what we should be doing. But remember that there's a covenanting of the nation that precedes that. Somebody will rightly ask, well, does the covenanting of the nation also condition the laws about homosexuality and all the rest? And I tend to think that I can be argued that that's not the case. That the reason you can execute a whole society is because the whole society has made a promise to do something is not living up to it. But the question of a homosexual uh, abomination in, in culture is not a matter of whether people promise to live up to that. That's a standard that they have to keep anyway. Because we're talking about not the execution of an individual, but of an entire society. And consequently, the society must have a former obligation. That is, they must have covenanted themselves to keep that. Well, I guess even earlier in that chapter, you that's right. And that, you see, I think is, I'm willing to follow today, you know, quite apart from whether the society wants to keep these laws or not. But whether a society, whether we can go and, and, uh, and wipe out Mesa, Arizona, to use your example, is a question which is of far graver importance. It's not simply a matter of individual jurisprudence. It's a question of whether a whole society may be wiped out. In other words, I don't see that the Israelites were given prerogatives to go to Egypt and to wipe out Egyptian tribes because they weren't following the one true God. But in their own society, where, the, where each of the um, individual tribes had said they would do so, then they were to punish each other and keep them to their promise. Shall I start from the beginning and, 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 and try to put this together logically now, a little more clearly? 
I'm saying individual standards of morality with respect to homosexuality, idolatry, um, adultery, stealing, murder, what have you. Um, God doesn't hold people accountable to those things just because they promise to be accountable. But a society is in a different class altogether. And so um, why could Israel wipe out the Canaanite tribes? Because they had a special revelation from God that ordained that they could do that. But they could not wipe out tribes, you know, in Egypt. God was not giving them Egypt as their promised land. He was not punishing the Egyptians. They didn't have the right to go and wipe out Egyptian civilization. All right? They didn't have a direct revelation. Now, let's take it a step further. With respect to their own internal affairs, when they had covenanted to keep these laws and to have one religion, then they could punish each other um, in, in keeping each other true to the promise, to the covenant, to follow that one religion. But they couldn't do that to a culture that had not made such a promise or covenant. Now, that's what I'm thinking. And what I'm saying is I'm teachable and I may be wrong on that. That's a difficult passage and that's the best I can do with it this evening. I do believe that before you can bring execution against the society, there must be a former obligation on the part of the society in its covenanting or promising to keep those laws. See, that's an internal matter of housekeeping among the Jews. It's not a matter, God did not let the Jews do that to the Egyptians. And so that salient difference helps me to see what Calvin was saying about its subversion that was being punished here. They were subverting, you know, their promise to keep to that one true faith. Um, but an Egyptian homosexual, of course, could be executed by the magistrate because God had made all kings subject to that law. He has not made any king but the um, Jewish king subject to uh, the internal housekeeping of Jerusalem, I mean of Israel, and it's uh, following after the covenant with God. Um, let me give you an alternative. I'm not inclined to this view, but somebody might hold the view that, um, well, that law cannot have an application today because there is no nation on earth that can be covenanted to God in the way that Israel was. Okay? Somebody might argue that that's one of those laws very similar to the laws pertaining to the division of the promised land, to the leveret institution, and so forth. Laws which teach us principles of equity, but laws which are not kept in their literal outward form just because there is a taking away of the promised land and taking away of the one covenanted people of God as a nation. I say that's not, I'm not inclined to that view, but I can understand how that might be argued. Now, do you want to take my view, the one I gave formally, or do you want to take this view, or do you want to take a third or fourth, and so forth? Well, I'm leaving it open to the class to do its homework and to come up with that. I just don't feel real secure to answer your question. I do feel obligated uh, to apply that law in some way, but I'm not sure how it would be done. And what does that prove? It proves that your teacher isn't, you know, as far along as he ought to be. And when he is in need of being taught the ABCs of uh, these matters, I mean, when he should be beyond that point, he's still down there with the ABCs, just like Melchizedek and all the rest. Yeah. When you were talking about the homosexuals, though, in a sense, um, before a homosexual would be executed, there would have to be a law of the state. Well, that's true. Yes, it is. It is. That's true. That's right. And that's why I wanted to go back and start again, because those two that shade into each other, if you hold my view, I think we're confusing, Wayne. Um, let's say that 50% plus one, Wayne, just to get back to this, did decide they wanted to follow that law. And so Mesa, Arizona, you know, is subject to it. The point is, they would, the, the society would have to agree that there is a law that makes that enforceable, first of all. 
and what Nancy's pointing out, which I had alluded to very quickly, is that that's also true with respect to homosexuality. It's only because our society would first have a law against homosexuality and making it a capital offense that the magistrate would do that. He wouldn't presume on his own to execute homosexuals or to have a vigilante committee against homosexuals. <clears throat> and so, in a sense, I mean, I know we're thinking out loud here, but your question comes down to this logically. Ought a society, ought a society, a modern society, to enforce that particular law against sub-societies, against Mesa, Arizona, or Jackson, Mississippi, or, you know, what have you? Ought they to do that? And um, I think the best thing for me to do is just to say, I've given you my opinion, and it's only worth that. And uh, you better go do your homework on your own now. Jim, you've been waiting to say something. I, mean, I hope this one does uh, at least easier to answer this one, but do you recall where in all of Calvin's literature the discussion in regard to the state and its responsibility to allude to in regard to Servetus? Where can that be found? Yes, in, in his uh, Defensio, it's in Latin. I'm only aware of certain segments of it translated by um, Philip Schaff in his History of the Christian Church. When he discusses Calvin, he gives salient quotations from the Defensio. It's, it's a, it has a lengthy title in Latin, and I, and I believe that it was in French and in Latin at the time. But it's Calvin's defense of the execution of Servetus. Look it up in Philip Schaff. It's the best thing I can do. Or better yet, uh, since I was supposed to make this announcement and forgot, if you would like to pick up from uh, Ted, he has a lengthy reply that I've given to certain historical criticisms by um, one Ian Murray against the theonomic view. And as part of Ian Murray's argument, he says Calvin was against these views. And I have a lengthy discussion of the development of Calvin's uh, thinking here. And I cite that segment uh, of the Defensio, which I was able to find. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, in a sense, it's true that, that no society gets away with breaking God's law. They're always broken by God's law. That is, when they won't keep God's law, then God, because of that law, will judge the society. But I think Wayne's question is, ought there to be a civil situation parallel to Old Testament Israel with um, the possibility of us bringing punishment against the whole society or a sub-society or a community of men who um, go after other gods? And um, and I'm, I've given you you know my scratch opinions on that right at the present. Um, if modern societies are not to do that, then God I think will punish modern societies for their idolatry on separate grounds anyway. But the question is whether that would constitute a further condemnation of a society that it did not enact such a law. That logically is the is the nature of Wayne's question. I think as we've discussed this, it comes out. It's a question of whether there's a moral obligation to keep that law today, even as we keep laws against homosexuality and so forth. Is it in the same ballpark? And I'm arguing there's a difference because of the individual and corporate nature of those two different situations. But I may be wrong. The, the one thing I want to I make very clear, I don't mind these difficult questions. I'm embarrassed, as any teacher ought to be, when you know, he's not able to teach his subject. But... Um, the one principle I'm going to hold out for is that difficulty does not disprove obligation. It may be difficult to apply and to understand, but our obligation is to understand and apply. Um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, today someone asked me if uh, the civil magistrate is to obey the law of God and he is not a believer, how is he to understand spiritually the sinners? Uh, 
Bible. Well, Paul does say that the work of the law is uh, shown forth on the heart even of Gentiles. They know that it's wrong for homosexuals to practice their vile deeds and, and things of that nature. So it, I mean, the Bible doesn't teach that it's impossible to understand the Bible at all. I mean, that if you read a sentence, you can't understand the English meaning of the words or anything. What it does teach is that these things are spiritually discerned. No saving knowledge of Scripture is possible apart from regeneration. And I think undoubtedly there's going to be perversions of the law of God, um, misapprehensions and uh, uh, misconceptions, when men who are not regenerate uh, make any uh, extensive use of the law. But the, the question is whether they're obliged to do so. In a sense, uh, I was asked before we came, oughtn't we to be voting for men who are Christians and who are good leaders, men who would qualify as elders in the church? And I think that as Christians, that's just good wisdom. We want people who can understand the Bible. But uh, that doesn't mean that it's an obligation or it's a prerequisite to be a civil ruler that you're an elder in the church or a member of the church. The Bible doesn't say that. It does say that they're obligated to follow the law of God. And then somebody gets really, you know, tortured by that sort of thing and says, well, you mean God obliges them to do something they're not able to do? And they say, what's new? That's why we all need to be saved. Magistrates and plumbers alike. But we're all obliged to keep the law of God. You see how these are logically separate questions. The ability to understand does not affect the obligation to obey. Okay? That comes up in your question and in Wayne's. Shall I repeat that? The ability to understand does not affect the obligation to obey. Are there other questions before I start running again? Okay, we've talked about the separation of church and state. I want to take up next the very difficult question that now comes under the rubric of the enforcement of morals. It has not always been called this, but since the debate over homosexuality in England and uh, uh, Lord Devlin's discussion of that issue under the title, The Enforcement of Morals, that's usually what it's called today. What is the question here? The question is, ought the state to punish certain violators of a religious understanding of morality? Let me give you an example. Should the state punish homosexuals? Now, Christianity says homosexuality is wrong. It's a sin. But should the state punish all sin? Should the state punish sin as defined by one religion? Should the state enforce morals? Okay, you see what the issue is? Should the state enforce um, what is in fact a religiously... Uh, um, should, it in, should it enforce a precept which has its origin in religion? Should it enforce a precept that has its origin in religion? As Christians say that it's wrong... Uh, to be a homosexual. But, I mean, we live in a free society where there's a separation of church and state, okay, with the confusion already. And since there is this separation, it's not right for the state to enforce a moral code that only Christians subscribe to. Those who argue against the enforcement of morals usually, in one form or another, hold to the doctrine of John Stuart Mill, where he said in his little booklet on liberty, that the state should only punish people for violating the liberties of others. That is, you should be free to do anything you want as long as your freedom, as long as the exercise of your freedom doesn't interfere with mine. Okay, so you're free to do what you want. I mean, you can have uh, homosexual orgies in your home, you can sing blasphemous songs, um, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't interfere with the freedom of somebody else. For instance, raping somebody else, or poisoning 
somebody else or stealing from somebody else deprives them of their freedom to do what they want. So Mill's point was the ideal of liberty. You can do whatever you want. You're free to do whatever you want, providing you don't violate the liberty of somebody else. Now, what I'm saying is that usually is the point of view behind those who are against the enforcement of morals. We shouldn't enforce laws against homosexuality, we're told today, because uh, as long as the homosexual's not infringing on your freedoms, he's not bothering you, uh, then you should leave him alone to pursue what he wants to do. Now, this is such a point of view, in our, I mean, this is such a, a popular point of view, I don't think I need to say too much more, but is there anybody who doesn't understand the nature of the controversy? Should we enforce morals? And I'll be using as my example homosexuality. Should we enforce laws against homosexuality? That's only an example, by the way. This is not a lecture against homosexuality. It's a lecture on the enforcement of morals. All right. Is homosexuality a civil right? It's always a good idea when you're ready to answer a difficult question to define your terms. Make sure you understand the question precisely. The first thing we have to do is to distinguish between right as an adjective and a right as a noun. Okay? It is right to tell the truth. There I'm using the word adjectivally. I'm saying it's morally acceptable, it's morally condoned to tell the truth. It's right to tell the truth. On the other hand, I say it is a right for us to meet here tonight and to have this discussion. <coughs> it is a right which we have, the right of free assembly. Can you understand the difference then? A right is different from something being right. There's the adjectival use and the nominal use of the word right. He has a right to check out whatever book he wants from the public library. But it is not right for him to keep it out when it's overdue. The Red Cross, it is right to contribute to the Red Cross, but the Red Cross does not have a right to contributions. What am I saying there? The Red Cross cannot come to your door and demand contributions. It is not their right. But on the other hand, you are right to give contributions to the Red Cross. I mean, provided that you really are. Everybody following the distinction? Well, for those of you who are Christians, if this becomes a little difficult, this is, in a sense, in a sense only, like the distinction between sin and crime. Are all crimes sin? Are all crimes sinful? Yes, all things being equal. Are all sins crimes? No. Coveting is not a crime. It's a sin to covet. It's a sin to overeat. But overeating and coveting are not crimes. That is, not every sin is enforced by the civil magistrate. I mean, a prohibition against every sin is not enforced by the civil magistrate. So, we are distinguishing now between sin and crime, or distinguishing between those things which are right and those things which are a right. I'm not sure from the looks on your faces that everybody's following. Is anybody confused? It won't make any sense after this point if we go on, if you're confused here. Okay, we've got to go further now. There are different senses of civil rights. We're asking about a civil right. Okay? What do we mean by a civil right? Well, let's distinguish, first of all, between what we call a freedom right, a benefit right, and a non-discrimination right. A freedom right, well, to, to explain this, let me say one more thing. A right, when a person has a right, I'm not talking about something being right, when a person has a right, that means there's a corresponding duty on the part of others toward him. 
Nobody has a right without a corresponding duty. It makes no sense to speak of rights without corresponding duties on the part of others. Okay, now a freedom right would mean that the corresponding duty is for people to let you do this. That is not to interfere with the pursuit of it. They have a duty to let you, to, to allow you freely to pursue something. So a freedom right would be like the right to an education. If I have a right to an education where civil right is understood in this first sense, that means you have the duty not to interfere with my pursuit of an education. If I have a free speech right, that means you ought not to stop me from standing in my soapbox and saying what I'm saying. Understand what a freedom right is? A freedom right means you have the freedom to pursue something. A benefit right, I'm not saying, by the way, that any of these genuinely are rights, but these are the way the words are used. A benefit right means that others have the duty to benefit you in some way. Welfare is perhaps excuse me, the leading example of a benefit right. When somebody says that he has a right to worker, workers' compensation, he has a right to Social Security, or what have you, they're saying the society has the duty to pay him a certain benefit. All right? When somebody says a minimum wage is a right that we all have, do you understand the argument or the claim? The claim is that society or somebody has the duty to pay you a certain amount, to benefit you in a certain way. Now, in addition to freedom rights and benefit rights, we have to notice non-discrimination rights. For instance, um, civil rights for members of certain races are, in fact, non-discrimination rights. What that means is you have the duty not to discriminate against this person in virtue of the color of his skin or the tone of his voice or you know, his looks or what have you. That's a non-discrimination right. You do not have the right in housing or employment or public facilities to discriminate against somebody on the basis of this. And so if, um, if somebody believes in civil rights for women, what that usually means is you ought not to discriminate against somebody on the, on the basis of that person being a woman when it comes to jobs or employment, uh, jobs or housing or public facilities or what have you. Okay, now, those are all illustrations. I'm not defending welfare or you know, women's liberation or anything like that. But you need to recognize that the word civil right, the phrase civil right, is used differently. Now, under the enforcement of morals, we're asking the question, is homosexuality a civil right? In what sense do we mean civil right? Well, I hope that we're all willing to eliminate number two. What we're saying, we're not talking about whether anybody has the right to be benefited in a homosexual way, if that can be called benefit. That is, that it's my right to homosexual favors. We know, and we're not talking about that. We're talking either about a freedom right or a non-discrimination right. Chuck? I don't understand the difference. If you, not, if you are not to discriminate against someone, say, on an arbitrary basis of race, color, freedom, et cetera, et cetera, what is the difference between that and a freedom right where, you, where people are required to let you do something? Because non-discrimination rights have to do with what would ordinarily be matters of private property. Ordinarily, since this is my factory, I can hire anybody I want to. And those people don't have the ordinary freedom right to come on my property and do what they want. But if I own the factory and the, and the state says 
that it's a non-discrimination, that Negroes have a non-discrimination right to employment. That means that if I have anybody come on my property work, I cannot um, separate out the Negroes from those which are not Negro. Okay? So this has to do with housing, employment, public facilities, and so forth. Um, for instance, in the South, for quite a while, there would be a, a, a drinking fountain for blacks and a drinking fountain for whites. Now, if somebody says, look, it is my freedom right to have a drink of water here on, at, at the courthouse, somebody could say, who was a segregationist, that's right, you're perfectly free to go over there and drink out of the fountain marked for blacks. And somebody might reply to that, no, this, getting a drink of water at a public facility is a non-discrimination right. I should be able to drink from any fountain that any white man should be able to drink from. That's different than a freedom right. That, that becomes a non-discrimination right. Does that help illustrate the difference? The difference between a freedom right and a benefit right can be illustrated nicely with respect to education. We said um, uh, people might have a right to an education. Now, if I mean I have a right to an education in sense number one, that means I have a right to pursue it and you can't get in my way. You shouldn't stand at the door of the university and keep me out. But there are a lot of people who say that education is a civil right in sense number two. What does that mean? It means anybody who wants to go to college should have their way paid if he can't pay for it himself. That is, it should be benefited to him to go to college. And so again, when you get into an argument with people as to whether education is a civil right, you better know whether you're talking about this or that. These are just elementary lessons in philosophy. You'll never win any arguments unless you're able to draw significant distinctions so that you won't fall into ambiguity when you're arguing. But now let's get back to this. Is homosexuality a civil right? We're not talking about number two. Nobody's saying that people have a right to be benefited with homosexual favors. Well, let's consider homosexuality simply as a non-discrimination right. The first point I want to make is homosexuality cannot be a non-discrimination right if it is not first a freedom right. Stop and think about it. If the law, if there are laws against a particular activity, then people cannot cite that act, cannot say that others have no right to discriminate against them in virtue of that activity. An illustration. There are laws against rape. Okay? So a known rapist comes to your factory and wants a job. And you say, no, I'm not going to hire you. And he says, why not? It's because you're a known rapist. And I realize you, know, you should be taken to the civil magistrate too. But the man goes to the magistrate himself and he says, those people down in that factory won't hire me on the basis that I'm a rapist. And that's not right. I mean, one sexual preference ought not to be used against them in hiring. And the civil magistrate should say, wait a minute. They have a perfect right to discriminate against criminals. And if you're a rapist, you're a criminal. And consequently, you have no non-discrimination right because you don't, first of all, have a freedom right. If we, if we are not free to rape, then there is no such thing as a non-discrimination right for rapists. There's nothing subtle about this. This is a very obvious illustration, so don't anybody get lost. You follow me? My point is that there's a logical connection between three and one. Nothing can be a non-discrimination right if it's not first a freedom right. I'm going to give you an absurd illustration. If somebody were to argue, some really hardened segregationists would argue, nobody is free to be a Negro. Then, of course, he would win his, he, I mean, he would have an iron-clad case against non-discrimination rights for Negroes. Because he would say, look, being a Negro is to be criminal. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a criminal offense to have black skin. Consequently, they can't have non-discrimination rights. I say that's absurd, but you get my point. There's a logical connection between three and one. 
Nothing can be a non-discrimination right that is not first a freedom right. I don't want to go into two at this point at all. Now then, we've, we've drawn all these distinctions. Let's get back on the main track and try to answer the question. Is homosexuality a civil right? That's the question. Should we enforce morals? We as Christians begin by saying, we don't think all sins should be punished by the civil magistrate, but we do believe certain sins should be punished by the civil magistrate. Those sins which are also called crimes in the Bible. Called crimes in virtue of the fact that the magistrate has the right to punish them. And we want to argue against the, the view of John Stuart Mill that the only time you have a right to punish somebody else is when he interferes with your own freedom. That is against this liberty ideal, if you will. We want to argue in the following way. I'm going to make seven points. First of all, someone's freedom is going to be curtailed when it comes to homosexuality, even if you consider it a non-discrimination right. Someone's freedom is going to be curtailed. Isn't that obvious? If a Christian says, let's say a Christian has his child in a public school, and a homosexual says, you have no right to dismiss me because I'm a homosexual, I should be allowed to teach anyway. And the parent says, I don't want my child being influenced by a pervert. And I don't care, by the way, whether that means after school the person is trying to draw my child into perversion. I just don't want somebody who has such improper moral standards instructing my child on anything. By the way, I don't care what people say in our society. That's my view, and I'm willing to defend it. I don't believe that because a man's a homosexual, that does automatically mean that he can te teach properly in other areas. Because I believe a man who has abominable standards with respect to sexual relations is very likely not to understand other areas of life properly either. But let's make the point that we have a whole society of Christians with their children in the public school. And they say our rights are going to be violated if we make homosexuality a non-discrimination right. Because if homosexuality is a non-discrimination right, that means that I must hire homosexuals in my factory and I must allow them to teach in my schools. And if you say that to us, if the state says that to us, then our rights to pursue associations which we deem to be proper associations and to shun associations which we deem to be abominable associations has been taken away from us. But now consider the homosexual's plight. On the other hand, he says, well, well, you with your religious, you know, sanctimonious, self-righteous standards, you Christians, if you hold up these standards and make the state enforce them, then I won't be able to work, and I won't be able to support my friends and family or what have you. So somebody's rights, somebody's freedoms are going to be curtailed, no matter what. You understand that? Now, if you first grant that somebody's rights are going to be curtailed, somebody's freedoms, then you have to have a moral standard by which you decide whose rights and freedoms are going to be curtailed. It won't do any good to be a pluralist now, right? If you're a pluralist, you say, well, everybody has a right to do what he wants to do. But that's precisely what Christians don't believe. We don't believe that homosexuals have the right to teach our children and to associate with uh, people in our factories or what have you. So my first point is that somebody's freedom will be curtailed and you can only say whose freedom will be curtailed when you have a specific moral system to answer the question. All right, my second point. To answer the question of whether homosexuality is a civil right, you must first know what the function of law is in society. You must know the limits of state coercion, and you must know the source of individual rights. And you can't answer that question unless you know the limits of state coercion, the source of individual rights, and the function of law in society. I'm going to tell you something at the end of this section of the lecture that's going to make you all hate me. All right. <laughs> My second point 
is that you can't decide whether homosexuality is a civil right without first deciding what the function of law is in society, the limits of state coercion, and the source of individual rights. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you have to know why do you have laws, and then should we have such a law? Should we have a law against homosexuality in society? Well, what's the purpose of law? What's the limit of the state's coercive powers? What are the source of rights? And then you go and you look at the source, you look at the limits, you look at the purpose of law, and you answer the question. Ah, but don't you see that to know the function of law in society, to know the limits of state coercion, and to know the source of rights, you must have a particular moral system and framework within which to answer those questions. You see, one has got to have an ethical standard which is the base for his view of the state's legislation and sanctions. Let Consider the alternative. I'll reduce the alternative to absurdity so you see why you have to believe this. If somebody says, no, the state doesn't have to have any moral standard for why it does this to people. I mean, we punish thieves and we punish murderers just because we want to. There's no moral standard behind it. It's for the good of society, utilitarian basis, or what have you. It's traditional. We don't have to have a moral standard for it. If that's true, that there's no moral standard lying behind the imprisonment of thieves, then imprisonment is, in fact, nothing more than kidnapping. And if there is mo no moral standard behind the execution of murderers, then the execution of murderers is just about a further form of murder. What happens then is the punishment of crime becomes the punishment of some individuals by the mass of other individuals, and that's all. It's just might makes right. All right. Therefore, since we don't want to say taxation, imprisonment, or execution are really nothing more but subtle and sophisticated forms of kidnapping, robbery, and murder, then there must be a moral foundation for the state's legislation against criminals. But if there must be a moral foundation, then we've got to decide which moral foundation we're going to have. My third point, I'm changing the subject slightly now. My third point is we can still follow the liberty ideal of John Stuart Mill and conclude that homosexuality is a crime. Because Mill said that if a man's actions, if the consequences of a man's actions were to interfere with the well-being of his neighbor, then it was proper to interfere with his freedom. Now, we as Christians happen to believe that the free and unrestrained following of a homosexual lifestyle in our society has evil consequences for our society. It is not for the well-being of our neighbors or for the continued uh, moral integrity of our society as a whole. The disintegration of the family will take place. A lack of respect in interpersonal relations and sexual conduct will take place. And therefore, it is for the corporate good of our society to follow God's law against homosexuality. My third point is, I can argue on John Stuart Mill's grounds that we should interfere with the freedom of homosexuals because the use of their freedom for homosexual relations is not for the well-being of our society. Now, if you were one of my opponents, what is the first thing you'd say in answer to that argument? Well, if you're on your toes, what you're going to say is, ah, oh, wait a minute. You say that if we have this free and open, un, you know, um, unfettered um, uh, approach to homosexuality in our society, it's going to lead to evil effects. But that's only on the basis of your Christian standard of morality. Homosexuals don't think that those things happening, the disintegration of the family, free and open sex like dogs out on the lawns and so forth are all that, is all that bad. Consequently, you're using your moral standard when you judge that homosexuality will have evil consequences. 
Now do you see why I made the first two points first? Because now we're going to close the exit on our opponent. We're going to say, now wait a minute. If you don't think homosexuality has evil consequences, that's because your moral standard disagrees with the Christian moral standard. And if you don't think I have the right to apply my moral standard to the answer of this in answering this question, then what right have you to use your moral standard in answering this question? And again, we see that it's inevitable that you're going to have a moral system as the foundation of your civil law. Everybody follow that? My fourth point. I guess, wait a minute, I gave you my fourth point. That was it. To complain that the third point is appealing to a moral system is, in fact, to use another moral system, but we've already argued you can't get away from a moral system in answering this question. Okay, so the fifth point is that John Stuart Mill's liberty ideal, the idea that we should let people do what they want to do unless they interfere with the liberty of others, must, in fact, be supplemented with a specific and discriminating moral framework that John Stuart Mill's liberty ideal cannot stand on its own. And the reason it can't stand on its own, I'll give you three reasons why it can't, okay? First of all, you've got to clarify what John Stuart Mill means when he says, you're free to do whatever you want unless it interferes with the freedom of others, unless it causes harm to others. Well, what kind of injury or harm is included in this uh, precept? I'll give you an example. When Kathy and I moved away from California, there is no doubt in our minds but that it caused a certain injury and harm to my in-laws. They did not want us to leave California. And they have missed us, and they've missed the grandchildren. There's been a great deal of emotional harm caused by us coming to Mississippi and leaving California. Did we violate their rights? Is that what John Stuart Mill meant, that I was not free to leave California because in doing so I'd cause harm to my in-laws? Well, no. Somebody says, what we mean here, I mean, here's, here's somebody defending this, what we mean here is physical harm. Okay, so as long as I don't cause physical harm to this guy, I can do whatever I want. Can I blackmail him? Can I threaten him? <laughs> person says, no, 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 no. The, the threat of physical harm is also a violation of his rights. Well, now it's becoming a bit ambiguous. What if I make a face at him? <laughs> is that a threat or not? You see what I mean? To make sense of what John Stuart Mill was saying in his liberty ideal, you've got to have a moral system that defines it. Let me give you a second reason. The liberty ideal has got to be made consistent as well. The opposite of John Stuart Mill's view of liberty is what is called paternalism. Anybody know what paternalism is? A pater is a father in Latin, right? Paternalism means acting like a father towards somebody. And John Stuart Mill and people who are liberals today, the principle of liberty, are usually dead set against paternalism, that the state should step in and act like a father toward us and treat us like children, telling us we shouldn't have homosexual relations or we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. That's paternalism. I'll make up my own mind when it comes to sexual conduct. All right? The difficulty is the very people who are liberals today and believe in the liberty ideal are the greatest paternalists when it comes to other questions like enforced education by the state. They argue some people may not think it's good for the children to be educated, but we know better than they do, so we'll force them to put their children in the schools. Paternalism in the form mm -hmm. of saying that even Christian schools must subscribe to state standards of education, or we must support the poor, 
We must support those who are disadvantaged or handicapped. We must take children out of the homes of parents where we don't think the parents are doing their job right. On and on and on. All of these, you see, are liberal points made today, but it, they are paternalistic points which violate the ideal of liberty. And therefore, for us to follow the liberty ideal, it would first have to be made consistent. At what point do we become paternalistic? We must take children out of the homes of parents where we don't think the parents are doing their job right. On and on and on. All of these, you see, are liberal points made today, but it, they are paternalistic points which violate the ideal of liberty. And therefore, for us to follow the liberty ideal, it would first have to be made consistent. At what point do we become paternalistic? And you can only answer that if you have a moral system by which to do so. Now, my third reason for saying the liberty ideal must be supplemented by a specific moral framework is that it has to be made applicable. It has to be made, it has to be made clear, consistent, and applicable before it's going to do us any good. And by saying it has to be made applicable, let me give you another illustration. The pers person who believes in the liberty ideal of John Stuart Mill says, you have no right to do that which violates the freedom of another person. You can't bring harm to him against his will. Okay, let us say that now we come upon a situation, a sadomasochistic sexual uh, situation, where there's abuse being done to another person's body. And the state now tries to prosecute the abuser. And the abused says, no, he was not violating my freedom. He was doing what I wanted him to do. Was that person's freedom violated or not? You see, you have to make this standard applicable. You have to indicate whether that is a violation of freedom or not. And as a point of fact, liberal society today does not accept um, consent as an adequate defense. I realize we're talking about some of the senior parts of life, but you really can't have a course on social ethics today without doing that. So I won't apologize, I suppose. But uh, is, is there anybody here who does not know what a snuff film is? All right. A snuff film is perhaps the most degrading form of pornography and that it involves sadomasochistic sexual acts where it leads to the death of the person who is being beaten and that person consents to it. It's called consensual death. He consents to, al to allow the masochism to go to the point of his own death. And then films are made of this and such low lives as who would watch it by them and so forth. Now the state has laws against snuff films. But should they? If the person consents to his own death? Do you see how difficult this liberty ideal becomes? We don't believe that consent is an adequate defense against the killing of somebody or the beating of somebody. Consequently, the liberty ideal must be clarified what counts as injury. It must be made consistent. When does paternalism come in? It must be made applicable or else consent becomes an adequate defense. Well, by this point I've driven home five times to you, haven't I? You've got to have a moral standard, a moral system before you can make any civil laws, before you can use the liberty ideal. My sixth point is that there are values beyond liberty which are prized by moral men. There are values beyond liberty which are prized by moral men, and liberty will in fact be forfeited in some cases in order to achieve those values. For instance, the values of justice, or security, or life, or human dignity, interpersonal integrity. These are values which men have been willing to pursue in deference to their liberty or in, 
with a willingness to give up their liberty. That is, I am willing to take away your liberty to a certain extent and to take away my liberty if that means a certain degree of security in our society. Should there be laws against plotting to assassinate the President of the United States? It doesn't violate anybody's liberty. But we do believe for the sake of our security and the security of our elected officials that it is right to give up our liberty to that degree that we won't allow people to sit around and as a party game make up plans for assassinating the President. That is, in fact, against the law. Did you know that, by the way? Don't play that game. <laughs> it's against the law to plot the assassination of anybody. Now, that is for the sake of security in human life, but we're all willing to give up a degree of freedom for that. And so my point is, since there are values beyond liberty which are prized by men, there must be a moral system within, within which the liberty ideal functions, if at all. And now, seventhly, how can the liberty ideal make an exception to freedom of action without justifying that exception by reference to some moral system? Okay, the liberty ideal says, you are free to do what you want except where your actions do harm to another person or jeopardize his freedom. What I want to know is, where do they get the right to make that exception? Why should there be any exception to freedom? Why shouldn't I be free to do whatever I want? See, it's traditionally said with people who argue in favor of homosexuality, men should be free to pursue homosexual relations. It doesn't hurt anybody. Of course, they have to grant that that means consent on the part of the other party is an adequate defense in the court of law. But nevertheless, homosexuality doesn't hurt anybody. People freely enter into it. But rape does. Because you see, rape is forcible sexual entry. It is forcible sexual conduct that is not willingly engaged by one party. So homosexuality should be a right Rape should be a crime. Now, obviously I'm not arguing as a Christian and arguing in favor of rape, but in order to test the value of his system and its integrity, I say to him, on what ground do you exclude rape as a right? Why shouldn't we be free to do whatever we want? I mean, wh what if some people say that, you know, sexually they just don't care for normal sexual relations, they don't care for homosexuality or for bestiality, what they care for is rape, and it's their right to pursue rape. The person says, because that's interfering with the freedom of another person. That's bringing harm to another person. And then you see you've got the person who pursues the liberty idea, and you say, why shouldn't we hurt other people? There's only one way he can defend the exception to his rule of freedom, and that's by a moral standard. Now, seven times over, shall I stop with the perfect number seven? <laughs> I could keep going. I hope I've drilled it into your head. You cannot use the liberty ideal to answer the question whether homosexuality is a civil right without an underlying moral system. It is impossible to answer that question without an underlying moral system. And so the only issue that remains is which moral system shall it be? Where freedom should be granted and where freedom should be curtailed cannot be determined without bringing to bear the principles of an underlying moral system. And thus, in application of my argument now, Christians have as much right as others to push for their moral system to guide the state as do libertarians have a right to push for their moral system to guide the state. And secondly, non-Christian systems should not and cannot be followed because they are not cogently justified and they are not validly applied. Non-Christian moral systems, as we said in our first lecture, either have vague principles or they have relevant specifics which have no authority. Non-Christian moral systems in practice go either toward totalitarianism or toward individual anarchy. That is, there is no apologetical defense for non-Christian moral systems. Consequently, since you must have a moral system in your, in your civil law, 
it must be the Christian moral system. Now, I don't expect anybody who came in as an unbeliever to accept that two-minute presentation. But we as Christians understand that means we have to go into the apologetical point that only Christianity has a valid moral system. It will do no good... I'm going to start again. I maintain homosexuality is not a civil right. My opponent says, when you say that, you're using the Christian moral system. And answer I say, you have to use a moral system and you have no other but the Christian moral system to use. That in a nutshell is my answer to this whole issue of the enforcement of morals. Is homosexuality a civil right? No, it's not, because the Word of God says the magistrate has the right to punish homosexuals. That was fast and perhaps more confusing than even I wanted it to be. Have you any questions? Um, what would he offer for a moral system that would be apart from Christianity? Well, like utilitarianism. What makes acts right or wrong is whether they bring the greatest good to the greatest number. Remember, we used that as an early illustration in our class. But utilitarianism has any number of philosophical and theological defects, which we've already pointed out. But you say there's no, you have no other system but the Christianity moral system. Did you say that? Yes, that's because all other systems dissolve upon cross-examination. See, I'm that. You see, I have to give you a whole 40-hour series on apologetics to to make that point that. From the Christian standpoint, we can argue against all moral systems and show their internal contradictions and their lack of cogency. So if he doesn't like the fact that we use our moral system, we say, well, what moral system are you using? And then you attack it and show that it's unworkable. The people who are most deluded, of course, are those who say, we won't use any moral system. And I've argued seven times over now that's impossible. You have to have a moral system or you won't have a civil law at all. Okay? Separation of church and state. We've, we've argued that, that means the separation of two institutions, but both being subject to the authority of God. On the enforcement of morals, we've argued not all sins are crimes, but those sins which are called crimes in the Bible are. And we've defended that position against the liberty ideal. Now I'll tell you what I said you were going to hate me for. Those of you who have read my book on homosexuality, the final chapter summarizes all this. And so those of you who have been writing like mad, indicate to me you haven't done your reading. No, <laughs> that wasn't assigned reading. But if, you would like to, if you'd like to pursue this at more detail and at your leisure, you will find in my chapter on uh, homosexuality in society um, in my book that I discuss these arguments. Now, the last question we have to take up under church and state tonight, can you change gears? <laughs> We've talked about what separation means. We've talked about the enforcement of morals. I want to take up the whole difficult question of distributive justice. Now, there's a logic to my outline here, and I'll explain it. Distributive justice. This is not very neat, I guess. Our first point was what separation means. Our second point had to do with the enforcement of morals. Third point with distributive justice. Now, you see, there are people who say that the enforcement of morals violates the separation of church and state. Before I could go to the enforcement of morals, I had to explain what separation of church and state properly means. Okay? So we understand what separation means, and then we can answer the question, should we enforce morals? And the answer is not all morals, but we should enforce the morals that the Bible tells us to enforce. In a sense, I'm saying this is what separation of church and state properly means, and enforcement of morals is not a violation of the separation of church and state. Now I'm going to turn the coin over. I'm going to say, if you understand what the separation of church and state means, distributive justice is a violation 
of the separation of church and state. Let me go over it again. If you know what separation of church and state properly means, biblically and historically, then the enforcement of morals is not a violation of the separation. Distributive justice is a violation of the separation of church and state. And we're, we're fast running out of time. And so I'm going to become um, a little less sophisticated and detailed here. I'm just going to try to spoon feed you for a little while to try to get it down quickly. Distributive justice, simply put, is what socialism is all about. Socialism says that justice demands the redistribution of wealth. That it is a person's right to have a certain income. It's a person's right to be supported by the state. It's a person's right to have a job, and if he doesn't, for the state to, to support him. And that is considered a question of distributive justice. By justice, we will distribute the welfare or um, the wealth in the following way. Okay, now, short of socialism, we do have um, an entity what is, which is called the welfare state. The welfare state, properly speaking, is not a socialist state, not pure and simple, because the socialist state says that all things are held in common. There is no private property at all. Everything is a matter of public ownership. The welfare state says there is a right to private property, but through taxation we can take care of inequities in the financial or um, monetary uh, distribution in our society. We can give to the poor, to the maimed, to the ugly, whoever we think deserves it, uh, somebody else's wealth. That's called a welfare state. Now, do we live in a welfare state? Yeah. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. And now you're going to get my polemic against the welfare state. What I'm going to argue here, because we may run out of time, let me put it to you very simply, is that to believe in distributive justice in that sense is to believe that the state has the right to um, distribute uh, charity, that the state has the right to enforce charity. But enforced charity is a contradiction in terms. The domain of the state is that of justice, I have argued, under the separation of church and state. The domain of the church is that of redemption, or love, or grace, or caritas, charity. Charity is the English form of the word for grace. What is grace? Undeserved favor. When God saves us by his grace, he does not do it because he owes it to us. If he owed it to us, it would be a matter of justice. All right? It's a matter of justice that I owe you this or that. Okay, let's say you come to my house and you repair a window. I owe it to you to pay you for it because we have a contract. It's a matter of justice to pay you. But if you come to my home and you say you haven't eaten in three days and I give you a sandwich, that's charity. Do you understand? It's undeserved favor. It's out of the goodness of my heart and my love for my neighbor that I do that. There's a difference between grace and justice. By the way, if you don't know that there's a difference between grace and justice, then you don't understand grace. All right? Any man who thinks that salvation is owed to him doesn't understand salvation. God in his justice should condemn us. God in his grace saves us. 
I know these are very simple concepts, but it's amazing how people confuse them. Grace is one thing. Love, redemption, taking care of the poor, what have you, is one thing. That's the realm of the church. Justice and deserts and owing things, matter of justice, I mean matters of justice pertain to the state. The state is the realm of justice. The church is the realm of grace. That's the separation of church and state. Now, for somebody to say the state can become an agency of love and benefit and charity is to violate the separation of church and state. That's my argument, pure and simple. Now, I'm going to go into it at some length, but that's what it's going to come down to. Isn't the case made by expanding the concept of justice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. The point Wayne's making is people who don't like what I've just said will say, we owe it to our neighbor to take care of him when he's out of work. It's a matter of justice. The state enforces justice, economic justice, by saying that I must pay my neighbor when he's out of work. I must take care of his welfare. I owe it to him. And so the state taxes me, and then he goes down to the state agency and he receives his welfare. You follow? You're exactly right. That m Somebody must argue that it's a matter of justice that we economically take care of people. And now I'm going to argue that that is wrong. I'm going to argue that if that's your concept of justice, then you don't understand the distinction between charity and justice and God himself, first of all. That's what Carl Henry argues in that article I assigned to you, The Nature of God and Social Ideals, in his book, Aspects of Christian uh, Social Ethics. Am I going to be able to make it here? Thank you. I gave you an assignment this week out of Aspects of Christian Social Ethics. And I wish I had the time to go over the article. I'll try to go over it a little bit. But Chapter 5 is the nature of God and social ideals. And what Henry argues is that the whole idea of expanding justice to include charity, the welfare of others, shows that people don't understand the difference between justice and love in God. There's a difference between justice and love. And if there's not, then, of course, what we mean by salvation by grace becomes salvation by merit, salvation because God owes it to us. And I think he's right. Christians should be the last people on earth to believe in the welfare state because they believe that God does not owe us his charity. It comes undeservedly. Gray? Didn't they use that verse, uh, owe no man anything except one another, and justify that? Well, Sure. Nobody's arguing here that we don't have a moral obligation to take care of the poor. We're arguing that the state does not have a moral obligation to take care of the poor. Don't you see, it's a, again one of those significant hairs we've got to learn to split if we're going to argue cogently. The Bible teaches we should take care of the poor, but the Bible never teaches that the state should do it. It teaches that the deacons of the church should do it, that individual Christians in their charitable esteem for their neighbors should do it. So we do owe it to love one another and to take care of each other. But the state does not owe it to any individual. The state is in the realm of justice, not in the realm of benefits and love. Jim, quickly. It seemed to me that going back to when I was in college, one of the situations that uh, frequently arise discussing some of these issues was the fact that when the state is viewed as the agency by which wealth is or goods or money or whatever is given to the poor, and that is a Christian duty to support that 
I always ask, well, how then does the biblical requirement that it is to be done given in the name of Christ ever met? And I was never given an answer for that because I don't think it's possible. And I was wondering if that's one of the contributing arguments, perhaps to some degree, that the state does not operate in the welfare sphere because it cannot be done yeah. in a biblical so you're questioning about an area that I haven't lectured on yet, but you're right. That's one of the arguments that can be used, that the state ought not to do this because it's supposed to be done in the name of Christ. And the state does not operate in the name of Christ. It must be subject to the rules of Christ, but the state does not say it's an agency of the gospel, which is to say to take care of the well-being and salvation of men. Okay, I, I, I'm going to pursue this. My argument is that because of individual property rights, the state cannot come to me and say, I owe it to take care of this man who is out of work. Now, Christians have that obligation. God has given it to us as an individual moral standard. But the state does not have that right because of individual property rights. And somebody says, well, why have individual property rights? Why not have lands and houses owned by everybody together? Makes sense. What's that called? Socialism. Okay? That is communal ownership, social ownership of everything. And my answer is, well, that involves no violation of individual rights as long as everybody consents to it. As I'm not against socialism if it's all because we consent to enter into a socialist arrangement. If we all want to go somewhere on an island and become a socialist community for as long as it will last, um, we're free to do so. The parties to it may enjoy the communal living enough, I think, for a time, to overcome certain inevitable problems, that some will work and some not, that some will achieve more in an hour than others can do in a day, and still they will all get the same income. Sounds great. The few who do not, excuse me, the few who do the most will in the end consider themselves workhorses, however, who do the work of two or three or twelve others, while these others are the freeloaders on the efforts of the few. But as long as they can get along with that arrangement, if they like it, there's no violation of individual rights. As long as some people want to be workhorses and others want to be freeloaders, that's all right. They got into the arrangement voluntarily. Nobody has used force to make them do it. They can get out of it voluntarily. I have no problem with voluntary socialism. I have a problem with the welfare state, though, when it enforces socialism. But why not say that everybody owns everything? That we all own everything there is, so that it's not like we go somewhere else to create a socialist community. Why not say this whole world's a socialist community? Ah, that has a very pleasant ring, doesn't it? But try analyzing what that means. Everybody owns everything. Well, if everybody owns everything, then everyone has an equal right to go everywhere, do what he pleases, take what he likes, destroy if he wishes, grow crops, burn crops, trample them down if he wants to, raise them up, so on and so on. Consider what that would be like in practice. Suppose you have saved money to buy a house for yourself and for your family. Some of us have done that. Now suppose that the principle everybody owns everything becomes adopted by the state. Well then, why shouldn't every itinerant hippie just come in and take over, sleeping in your beds, eating in your kitchen, not bothering to replace the food supply, not bothering to clean up the mess? After all, it belongs to all of us, doesn't it? So we have just as much, that person has just as much right to your house, to your food, to your bed as you do. What happens if we all want to sleep in the same bedroom and there's not enough room for us? Is it the strongest who wins so that socialism becomes, you know, the right of the mighty? What would be the result? 
Well, since no one would be responsible for anything, I guarantee you the property will soon be destroyed, the food will be used up, and the facilities will be non-functional in your house. Beginning as a house that one family could use, it ends up as a house which no family can use. That's what public ownership means. And if the principle continued to be adopted, I mean, if, can't you see that? Isn't that rather true? Let's say we all decided that there is one house in Jackson that everybody owns. That house would last about a week. It wouldn't be torn up by the fights between people who want the upper bedrooms and the toilets being, you know, backed up and all the rest. It'd be a week. Now, if that applies to the principle of one house, let's, uh, let's expand that and say that a whole block is public ownership or a whole community or a town, or a state, or the whole country. Why, if it applies to the one house, would it not apply to everything? Since nobody would be responsible for anything, the property would soon be destroyed, I maintain. Uh, suppose two men are cast ashore on an island, and they agree that each is going to cultivate half of the island. The first man is industrious, and he grows crops, and he builds a shelter. Begins to sound like a child's story, doesn't it? He makes the most of the situation with which he is confronted. Ah, but the second man, he thinks that warm days are going to last forever, so he lies in the sun and he picks coconuts while they last. He does, he does a minimum of work to sustain himself. Now, at the time of harvest, the second man has nothing to harvest, and he doesn't go and offer to help the first man take in his harvest. But later, when the dearth of food on the island becomes apparent, the second man comes to the first man and demands half of his harvest as his quote-unquote right. But, of course, he has no right to the product of the first man's labors, I would say. The first man may freely choose to give part of his harvest to the second out of the charity of his heart. He might rather give to the freeloader rather than see him starve. But that's just what it is, charity. It is not the second man's right. Consider a medical researcher. Let's say he spends every evening in his laboratory doing medical research while another man wastes away his time. Now, one day, the first man comes up with a cure for a disease. And the second man, are you anticipating, has the disease. Okay? The second man contracts the disease and comes to the first man and claims the cure as his right. He says, you have a cure for this disease. It's my right that you give it to me. And the first man says, well, you may have it for a price. As you, you will pay me for my labor. And then I will be glad to share it with you. I deserve something for all the years of work I put into perfecting this cure for your disease. But then the second man insists that he should have it for nothing. He says, free medical care is a human right, so fork it over. It seems absurd, doesn't it? And yet, you know, we have people today who are arguing that medical services are a public right. They are saying the same absurd things, which you can see if you just stop and think about it, are absurd. But of course, the second man doesn't have that right. If he had a right to the product of the first man's labor without the first man's consent, then to that extent the first man would in fact become the slave of the second man. But because each man has his rights, neither should be the slave of the other, unwillingly. Of course, the first man may decide that if the other one can't pay for it, he'll give it to him for nothing. Physicians often do that. They sometimes don't charge their patients. Sometimes they charge some patients less than others because they realize that some don't have a greater ability to pay. And I think it's the, it's the freedom right of a physician to make that decision. If he wants out of the goodness of his heart to do that, that's fine. But a man cannot go to a physician and say, you owe it to me to take care of me. You owe it to me to give me medical attention. You owe it to me as a right. 
because then the physician has implicitly become the slave of the patient. Consider somebody violently assaults you on the street. Is he legally liable? Well, of course he is. You see, he's violated one of your rights. He has knowingly injured you. And since he initiated the aggression against you, he should be made to expiate for his crime. He should pay you compensation and restitution for that attack. Some, suppose somebody negligently leaves his bicycle out on the sidewalk and you trip over it in the dark and injure yourself. He didn't do it intentionally, but does he owe you compensation? Yes, he does. Unwittingly, he injured you, but the fact is he injured you because of a lack of uh, pursuit of proper responsibility, and so he should pay you as the victim. But now suppose that somebody across the street from you is unemployed. Should you be taxed extra to pay for his expenses? I argue not at all. You have not injured him. You are not responsible for the fact that he's unemployed, unless, of course, you're one of our senators or bureaucrats who, because of your business in Washington, lead to unemployment, but we'll get to that later. You may voluntarily wish to help out your neighbor. Better still, you may try to find him a job to get him back on his feet. You may bring him to the church and show him the charity of Christ's people. That's all well and good. But he does not have a right to your support or else you have become the slave of your neighbor. Consider that one man works hard for years and finally earns a high salary as a professional man. Many, after many years, he finally gets into a high income bracket as a professional. A second man, however, prefers not to work at all and he spends wastefully whatever money he has. Let's say his parents left him an inheritance and he squanders it. So that after a year or two, he has nothing left and at the end of this time, he has a long siege of illness and lots of medical bills to pay. And then he comes to the government and he says, I demand that you pay my medical bills. What does it mean when he says the government must pay his medical bills? It means that that professional man who worked all those years and the taxpayers of the land must pay his medical bills. Because the government doesn't pay medical bills out of nowhere. It's got to take the money from somebody. Now, of course, a lot of people justify the welfare state saying since, you know, it's kind of a faceless thing, we don't... It's not as though the man comes across the street and tells his professional neighbor, you must pay for my medical bills. That would seem terrible. That would be slavery. But as long as the government taxes the professional man at a high rate so that his money eventually filters down into the pockets of the man who squandered his inheritance, then it doesn't bother us. And I want to know what the difference is, except there's a middleman. Augustine put it very well when he said, what are governments without justice but great bands of robbers? If the man came over and robbed you of your money, you'd call him a thief. If he goes to the government and the government takes it, we call it a welfare state. It's become fashionable to claim virtually everything today that one needs or desires as one's right. And thus many people claim that they have a right to a job. They have a right to free medical care. They have a right to free food and clothing. They have a right to a decent home and so on and so on. Now if one asks, apart from any specific context, whether it would be desirable if everyone had these things, we might all say, yes, of course it would be desirable if we all had jobs, we all had nice homes, we all had medical attention, and so forth. But you see, there's a gimmick attached here. At whose expense will we give jobs and medical attention to everybody? You see, jobs and medical care and education, they don't grow on trees like wild apples. These are goods and these are services produced only by men. Only men make factories only men, you know, have medical, give medical attention. These are goods and services produced by men. And so we must ask, under what conditions 
these men should provide them for others. If some men are entitled by right to the products of work of others, it means that those others are deprived of rights and condemned to slave labor. An alleged right of one man which necessitates the violation of the rights of another is not and cannot then be a right. No man can have a right to impose an unchosen obligation, an unrewarded duty, or an involuntary servitude on another man. There is no such thing as a right to enslave others. And so if a person says, I have a right to medical attention, what he's saying is, I have a right to enslave doctors or others to take care of me. I hope, by the way, in all of this, you keep hearing me say over and over again, out of the goodness of our hearts, we ought to help those who are deprived. I'm not, you know, a Simon Legree saying, ah, now let the poor starve, or let those who don't have medical attention die. What I'm saying is, don't enslave others to take care of that. Let the charity of Christ's people take care of it. Observe, I think, what can be called the intellectual precision of our founding fathers. Our founding fathers spoke of the right to the pursuit of happiness. Notice they did not speak of the right to happiness. We all have a right to pursue happiness, but we don't have a right to be happy. That isn't to say we violate some right. That is to say nobody can, can go and demand happiness of others. It means that a man has the right to take the actions he deems necessary to achieve his happiness. It does not mean that others must make him happy. The right to life means that a man has a right to support his life by his own work at any economic level, as high as his ability will carry him. It does not mean that others must provide him with the necessities of life at whatever level he wants. The right to property means that a man has a right to take the economic actions necessary to earn property, to use the property, and to dispose of the property. It does not mean that others must provide him with property. The right to free speech means that a man has a right to express his ideas without danger of suppression, interference, or punitive action by the government. It does not mean that others have to provide him with a lecture hall, a radio station, or a printing press, just so that he can give out his ideas. Any undertaking that involves more than one man requires the voluntary consent of every participant, but nobody has a right to force his decision on others. There's no such thing as a right to a job. There's only a right to free trade. There's no such thing as a right to a home, only the right to free trade. There's no such thing as a right to a fair wage. There is no such thing as the rights of consumers to milk or shoes or movies or champagne if producers choose to manufacture such items and they don't have the money to pay for them. And here's a real popular thing. In the community I lived in, I remember very well the arguments over whether the, uh, the city should build a public swimming pool. It was going to be quite expensive. It was an Olympic-sized pool and so forth. And the argument was, all the children of the community will have the right to use it. We're going to tax everybody. We're all going to build this pool. And some people showed up at the council hearing when they were going to make that decision and said, we don't want a pool. We aren't swimmers. Our children aren't swimmers. Or we don't have children. And therefore, you may want to go swimming, but we don't want to pay for it. They built the pool anyway. And so, I mean, this doesn't prove that right always wins out in the end. But the argument was a legitimate one. Why should you, because you want to go swimming, force me to pay for it? What if somebody comes along and says, you know, I think operas are really fantastic. I hope I don't offend anybody, but I can't stand operas. I just, I mean, I pr it probably shows I have all my taste in my mouth and I don't have any, any musical appreciation, but I just don't like operas. What if somebody says there ought to be a public fund to support an opera society in Jackson, Mississippi? Sound familiar? Or that we ought to support the ballet or what have you. 
and that since this is culturally enlightening and uplifting, everybody should pay for it, even if they happen to despise ballet and opera. Just isn't right, is it? I've run out of time. I haven't run out of notes, though. <laughs> That's not unusual. Uh, let me just give you a, a closing remark here, and then we'll come back to this next week. I think we need to expose once and for all the, f the fiction of public ownership for what it is, a fiction. There is no such thing as public ownership. And all of the pleas in the world for socialism and our welfare state will not make sense out of the notion of public ownership. If you think you own something that is said to be owned by the people of uh, whom you are one, ask yourself what power you individually have over it. Let's say the people own something. And since you're part of the people, you own it too. I want you to ask yourself, what does that mean? If you own stock in a corporation, you're genuinely a part owner of that corporation. You can cast your vote on the corporation's policy decisions, and more importantly, you can take out your stock at any time that you care to disassociate yourself with the association or with the corporation. You can collect the value of the shares you own, and so forth and so on. But I want you to try the same thing with a government-owned enterprise. <laughs> okay? <laughs> The post office is supposed to belong to the people. Isn't that right? Since I don't care to have anything to do with the department, I think I'll write to Washington and collect my share of what it's worth. No. That isn't what we mean by public ownership here. It's not like a corporation at all. You can't imagine how far you, you would get in an endeavor, can't you? For, in, uh, another, for instance, since I own part of the car that is being used by the secret police, <laughs> I think I'll cash in on that part that I own right now. <laughs> I think you'd soon find that you don't own any part of that car. <laughs> you pay your taxes to support it whether you want to or not, and they drive wherever they want to whether you want them to or not. You don't own that car, but, of course, you're told that you do. What is owned by the people is only paid for by the people. It's used by government officials at the people's expense and occasionally by you under conditions laid down by the government. In other words, what is owned by the collective is paid for by one group and is used by another. When all is said and done is distributive justice is a form of slavery. Secondly, distributive justice confuses justice and charity, as I've been saying, and therefore reflects an improper theology and is not acceptable by Christians who believe that charity should be distributed by the deacons of the church and not by the minister of justice in the state. The sword ought not to be used to turn charity into coercion. And I apologize for going over time and for not finishing my notes. We still have a long lecture on capital punishment and war, but uh, when it comes to distributive justice, I believe that violates the separation of church and state. I don't believe the enforcement of morals does, but I do believe distributive justice does. And um, I hope you'll come back next week and we'll try to make up for some lost time.